Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Beijing boycott. U.S. government officials are expected to skip China's Winter Olympics. Delisting drama fears that more Chinese tech stocks could be forced off U.S. exchanges. And data-dependent, scientists cautiously optimistic on the impact of Omicron. It's Monday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move once again. Fantastic to be back with you for another highly consequential week, both for global markets and also for global health. Science and stimulus once again dominating the discourse. And there may be reason for hope. The U.S. chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said this weekend he's cautiously optimistic that vaccines are effective against the new variant and that Omicron, while highly contagious, may not lead to severe illness. Now, let's be clear, that's not yet based on a scientific review, just anecdotal evidence so far. We'll discuss all the deeper tells and the implications very shortly. For now, though, caution is the watchword for stocks with the tech tensions extending. The Nasdaq now off some 7% from recent highs as investors pair back on richly valued growth stocks. Cryptocurrencies may provide diversification, but not safety. Bitcoin fell more than 20% this weekend to near $43,000 per Bitcoin. It then, as you can see, higher to 48000 or just above, and again, lower today. So I think volatility more the word than anything else. In Asia, the Hang Seng hit a 14-month low, a shakedown in tech stocks exacerbated by news that ride-hailing giant Diddy will leave the New York Stock Exchange. Alibaba is also listed there, and that fell some 5%. Now, SoftBank, whose Vision Fund is a key investor in both Diddy and Alibaba, pulled back 8%, just over 8%, in fact, today. It's fallen for the past seven sessions. So turbulence is the watchword, a reflection of the tech tensions between the US and China. But it's not the only source of angst. Diplomatic pressures in focus today, too. And that's where we begin the drivers. Sources close to the Biden administration say the U.S. is planning a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics. The ban, set to be unveiled this week, would mean no U.S. officials will attend the Games in February. It will not affect athletes wishing to compete, however. China warning of, quote, resolute consequences if it goes ahead. David Culver joins us now. David, great to have you with us as always. So a partial boycott. Athletes can compete but no government officials expected to attend, not being taken well in China. As expected, Julia. And, you know, I think this was also something that was anticipated here for several weeks. Now, they don't like it and they've expressed that. And as you point out, they want these resolute countermeasures to be put in place. Not clear what exactly that would look like. But essentially, this is that middle ground from the U.S. perspective to say, look, we're not going to allow our officials to be attending as though nothing that is happening within China is is uh, offensive to the rest of the world, particularly when it comes to human rights. I mean, there are widespread allegations of human rights abuses 
particularly involving the ethnic Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, the far western region, also with Tibet, not to mention the many other issues that have circulated, including tensions in the South China Sea, issues with pro-democracy protests and the cracking down in Hong Kong, uh, COVID origins questions that still remain, and the early mishandling that took place here. So you've got a whole set of issues that are compiled together and and coincide with what is supposed to be a sports-focused event, one that China was hoping to repeat from 2008 in welcoming the world, setting the stage, and really showing that they have the ability to put on pageantry and performance once again. But it's going to be overshadowed. We've known this. It's going to be overshadowed by the geopolitics and by the many, many issues that surround this. Now, as far as how it's being received here, we heard what the foreign ministry said. It's interesting to note they've also censored any search for U.S. boycott of the Olympics on Chinese social media. Why do that? Well, it may bring up some of the questions as to why the U.S. would boycott from a diplomatic perspective, and hence you bring into uh, the conversation here the many issues we just talked about, Julia. So by not allowing it to be searched, you don't allow the conversation to flow. You can stop some of the comment sections, and it keeps the dialogue quiet. It's astonishing in uh, this day and age with the digitization and the technology that we have that you can literally wipe the discussion, not only of a potential diplomatic boycott, but to your point, all the other issues that might have precipitated it, including, of course, uh, the treatment of tennis star Pong Shui, which is the the sort of latest issue, I think, that we're all discussing. Um, What might countermeasures look like, resolute countermeasures? What, What might that look like, David? Do you have any sense? You know, it's something that could be fashioned in if there's an event, for example, involving the U.S. going forward, China would withhold bringing uh, any of their officials to to show face. Uh, It it could be something, for example, they were anticipating actually the day after the Olympics to host uh, an anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Nixon visit from 1972. That's actually taking place that anniversary, the day after the Olympics ends. So you perhaps now are going to look at uh, a situation where they're not going to be inviting any U.S. officials to attend that. It's really unclear how they're going to move forward with these so-called countermeasures. We've seen this, though, before, whether it's visa restrictions or any sort of sanctions. China does everything in reciprocity. They do it the exact same so as to show, really domestically, that they don't want to lose face. They are standing up to the West. They like to portray that in this increased nationalistic society and to show that they're not going to back down. And it's something that they'll likely continue through these Olympics as well and going into late next year, because that's really, to be quite honest, the biggest event of the year. You're talking about the party Congress, where President Xi will very likely continue on for a third term in office, Julia. Yes overshadowed i think is the uh, is the key word here and the last thing they want at this important moment politically yeah. and geopolitically david great to have you with us as always david culver there Let's move on. Tech turbulence in China. Online giants suffering big losses with Alibaba, Baidu and JD.com all dropping sharply in Hong Kong today. This follows news from Friday that newly listed ride-hailing giant Diddy said it would delist from the New York Stock Exchange. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, and there's been a whole sphere of discussion about privacy concerns, about access to data, Chinese data over in the United States with a company providing data as a result of their being listed. But what were the protections for international and U.S. investors in Diddy to then be told suddenly, sorry, the stock's going to disappear and your holding could potentially be worthless? 
Yeah, it is, I think, uh, shocking developments, to put it mildly, for any investors who uh, who bought the shares of the of Didi that traded here in the U.S. The company says that they are going to transfer any investment to a listing that should take place in Hong Kong so that, in theory, you're not getting wiped out and losing your money. But it does beg the question, people that tend to buy Chinese-listed stocks in the United States are usually doing so because they like having the fact that it is on an exchange like the MYSE or NASDAQ, you know, have the SEC protections in place. So it does beg the question whether or not a U.S. investor or another foreign investor that is buying a Chinese stock that lists in America, do they want to have exposure to those shares that are now listed in Hong Kong? And I think that is an open question that remains to be seen. What happens to DD shares once they start trading abroad? So if you're an investor, just to be clear, and you're looking at perhaps your holdings, as we discussed at the beginning of the show, SoftBank is an investor in, in Didi, it's an investor in Alibaba. So their shareholdings have been, or the value of their holdings have been hurt. But if you're an ordinary investor and you're currently holding Alibaba, for example, and you're perhaps worried about that, um, do we know what the rules are surrounding holding a stock that suddenly says, look, we're going to be delisted? Because there will be people saying maybe I should sell now in order to not take the risk. But are there any protections and, and who is responsible, whether it's the exchange or the SEC, perhaps, to make sure investors are informed about these risks? Yeah, that is a great question. I think what it depends upon is whether or not you are having a seamless transition of a company that is listed in the U.S. to another exchange like Hong Kong. In the case of Alibaba, something if you were to have that to happen, Alibaba already has Hong Kong listed shares, presumably you would have a pretty seamless transition. This is be a, a lot different than like what happened with, for example, Luckin Coffee, the company that wound up getting delisted because of accounting issues and things of that nature. That's where you have a case where, for the most part, your investment gets wiped out. I think if you have a company like an Alibaba, a JDD, I'm sorry, JD, that are you know legitimate businesses here in the U.S., they're not going to completely go away, even if their exchange is moved from the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ to the uh, Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Hmm. Fascinating to watch. Paula Monica, thank you so much for, for that. Okay, it's still early days, but there's another glimmer of Omicron optimism. In South Africa, initial data shows patients with the new coronavirus variant are not dependent on oxygen, though it seems to be fast spreading. So far, it's producing mostly mild cases. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen is tracking the data and joins us now. And Elizabeth, before you do, I know we're going to couch this heavily, that this is not scientifically reviewed. It's only anecdotal information. What more can you tell us? That's right, Julia. So again, I'm going to give that caveat as well. This is a relatively very actually small number of patients. It's 42 patients in South Africa. We're not sure of their vaccination status. And so that will come into play as time goes on. But in order for a variant to be a real threat, it has to one, be more transmissible to evade the vaccine to some extent or another, but also cause serious illness. So let's look at what happened with these 42 patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19. 
Now, first of all, most of them were hospitalized with something else. And then upon testing, they found they had COVID. But what they found was that 70 percent of them were not dependent on oxygen. So that's a pretty good that's a pretty good number. And also in the last two weeks, they found that the hospital length of stay decreased. It had been sort of pre-Omicron about eight and a half days, and now they're seeing about 2.8 days. So that's a big difference. I mean, 2.8 days for someone with COVID is relatively short, you know, when you put it in comparison with previously. Julia? Fascinating. Great. Elizabeth Cohen, we'll continue to watch the data and hopefully we'll get more information, particularly on the vaccines as well, by the end of this week, if not next week, we hope, I believe. We, we certainly do hope that. I mean, there are more tests that they can do. We hope to know more. Thank you. Elizabeth Cohen there. OK, and travel rules tightened. The UK says all passengers arriving in the country will now have to take a COVID test within 48 hours of their flight. Anna Stewart has the latest. The travel rule book keeps on changing. Nigeria has been added to the UK's red list. That brings it to a total of 10 Southern African nations which only UK citizens can travel from. Now, you need to quarantine in a hotel facility now if you're coming back from one of these countries for 10 days, and it costs around $3,000. From tomorrow, there's additional testing requirements. Anyone arriving into the UK will need to take a pre-departure test within two days before arriving, 48 hours. It can be an antigen test or a PCR, and it is regardless of vaccination status. That's also in addition to having to take a test within two days of arriving into the UK. Now, that before could have been a rapid antigen test. Now that needs to be a PCR, which, of course, does bring up those costs. And that is why there are concerns that it could deter some people from traveling. And the travel and tourism industry is not happy. There are calls for the UK government to give them more financial support, given these new restrictions, either in the form of the furlough scheme returning for the sector or additional financial support, or even paying for the mandatory tests. Traveling during this pandemic is possible. It's totally doable. It's just the costs of the tests need to be taken into account. You need to be organized to get them all booked in advance. And of course, you have to be flexible, given the rules can change where you are and where you're trying to get to. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. At least 21 people have now died in Indonesia after Saturday's volcanic eruption. Officials say 21 more are missing. Authorities have been conducting search operations, but they've been hampered by poor weather and hot clouds of ash from the volcano. Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin are getting ready for an important video call on Tuesday. The main topic of conversation is expected to be the buildup of Russian forces near the border with Ukraine. U.S. intelligence experts say Russia could have 175,000 troops at the border by early next year. OK, still to come here on First Move, China conflicts amid mounting tensions. Former Treasury Secretary Jack Liu says the U.S. has to find a way to work with Beijing or risk harming its consumers. He joins us next and minted. The only thing rarer than a unicorn is a unicorn born in the Philippines. I speak to the CEO of the country's first billion dollar startup. That's all coming up. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move in U.S. stocks looking set for a bit of a rebound in early trade this Monday. The Nasdaq set to regain some of last week's losses. That said, a whole host of market challenges await investors this week, including fears of a quicker Fed tightening path. The U.S. central bank says it will at least discuss a faster withdrawal of support as soon as next week. Hold on to your hats. One of the questions, of course, is whether the new variant Omicron will change that view. Positive momentum, however, from Friday's U.S. jobs report, which showed more than 600,000 people rejoining the workforce last month. And a firmer U.S. labor picture, but huge uncertainties inside China's economy. The Chinese central bank announcing Monday it's pumping fresh liquidity into the banking system as ailing property developer Evergrande warns again that it's on the brink of default, with a major restructuring reportedly on the horizon. Its shares falling some 20 percent in trade today. Chinese tech stocks also under pressure after ride-hailing app Didi said it would delist from the New York Stock Exchange. Didi fell some 22% on Fridays, down another 4% pre-market, as you can see there. Huge uncertainty for U.S. investors in Chinese tech stocks on fears. The tighter U.S. regulation could lead to more companies choosing to delist. The big question, where are the protection protections for U.S. investors? Much to discuss. Joining us now, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, also served as White House Chief of Staff in the Obama White House, as well as the Director of the Office of Management and Budget in both the Clinton and Obama administrations. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I'd like to start first, if you wouldn't mind, by talking about the relationship between the United States and China and just what we've seen with some companies like Diddy choosing to delist from the United States. What do you make of what we're seeing well, it's good to be with you, Julia. And uh, obviously, we are at uh, a moment when relations between the United States and China are very stressed. Um, and I think it's incumbent on the leaders in both countries to manage our differences and look for areas where we can cooperate in order to provide that stability that we each need in our own countries and candidly that the world needs in the two largest economies and largest superpowers uh, in the world. Um, you know, the, 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 there's not one responsibility here. There's responsibility in both directions. Uh, and the level of rhetoric has risen over the last years to the point where miscalculations could lead to strategic as well as economic fallout. I think it's a really positive thing that the two leaders had a very long video conference. Uh, it's opened the door uh, for much deeper conversations amongst diplomats and policymakers on both sides. And I can't stress how important it is for those kinds of talks to go on. Um, you can't possibly know what your competitor or even your adversary is truly thinking unless you engage. And the lack of direct conversation at a senior level has been very problematic. So I'm encouraged that coming out of that meeting, there are discussions on a range of topics from climate to nuclear arms control to the Iran negotiations and many more. Um, I think that's a long way to go. And it's a difficult situation where the decoupling of our economies is not an option that either of us can tolerate. And slipping into direct uh, conflict that could bubble over is something that I think everyone has to treat as uh, 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 something to be avoided uh, and engagement is the way to, to manage it. You know, as you point out, uh, much of the challenges that this had 
the administration faces have intrinsic ties to China, whether it's the supply chain, climate change, as, as you point out, the geopolitics, North Korea, Taiwan even. Um, and the danger is that the American consumer and American investors get caught in the crossfire um, just on a diplomatic basis, what we're expected to hear this week, actually, is that U.S. government officials decide to boycott the Winter Olympics. And we were just discussing on the show how important internationally for the face of China that is. Is that the right decision? Will that be the right decision, do you believe, by this Look, government? I, I, I'm a big believer in people-to-people -people contact uh, from academic to cultural to athletic. But I also think um, that governments have to take stands on matters of core principle. And the challenge is how to find a pathway here and how to talk it through so that this doesn't become uh, an area of um, for, to further uh, increase the likelihood of direct uh, conflict. Um, you know, I, I, I am not sure that the range of options is as simple as a boycott or no boycott. I think that uh, they're looking, uh, if I read the public statements correctly, at ways to register uh, a serious objection to the way that uh, you know, China has handled uh, the issues related to some human rights and, and, and personal freedom issues without having it be an all-out boycott. Um, I hope that uh, it can be managed in a way where uh, it doesn't lead to uh, uh, just ratcheting up uh, what is already a stressed situation. It's incumbent, I think, on China to hear the message that some of the things going on, some of the actions that it needs to take are a big part of the problem. And I don't think it's just a concern in the United States. So, you know, I, it, it, it would be better if the situation could be resolved uh, by taking care of, uh, of the underlying issues. That would be the best outcome. Hmm. I mean, part of the way that the Trump administration handled this and tried to put pressure on China was by tariffs. And those have remained because the, the Biden administration has chosen not to remove them. Do you think it's politically impossible now to see any removal of those, even if it would perhaps help, and you've said this yourself, that it would help with the pricing pressures that, that the yeah, United States currently faces. Believe, I, for a long time, believe these tariffs were a big mistake. They're a tax oh. on the American consumer. And at a time when concern about inflation is high, um, it is actually something that you can do to reduce prices, uh, to roll back uh, tariffs, which I think were misguided uh, in many cases in the first place. And it's not just with China, it's tariffs with other countries as well. Some of our closest uh, allies we've had uh, from the Trump administration, a legacy of tariffs to unwind. I think the politics around tariffs are very hard. Um, you know, there's a broad bipartisan view that the kind of aggressive use of tariffs um, protects uh, American workers. I don't believe that that is actually the correct way to view it. I think when you're hurting the U.S. economy, you're hurting American families. Um, but I think that leaders need to be able to distinguish between what are effective and ineffective policies and navigating uh, these political waters is hard. I hope that they're looking for a pathway to uh, get out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We can still hear you. Jack, can you still hear me? I can hear you. Can you Perfect. hear me? Perfect. We're good. Yeah, don't worry. Thank you for the <laughs> thank you for the impromptu tech check though. I like that you're on top of this. We have had a few technical issues. <laughs>
<laughs> I know you're doing our work for us. Um, I want to circle back actually to, to where I began the conversation and because you understand the diplomatic side, but you also understand the economics and the, and the investor side of this as well. Should investors be very careful today if they're investing in Chinese companies listed in the United States? Because Diddy's won, but I know a lot of investors are looking at this now. And should there perhaps be more protections from the SEC or exchanges warning international and U.S. investors, um, whether you like it or not, um, Chinese investments today are a risk from either direction? I actually think investors understand that there's a high level of tension uh, between the United States and China, and there are some issues about the listing of Chinese stocks. Some of them are technical, important, but technical in terms of what accounting standards you comply with. Some have to do with how uh, policies are imposed in terms of uh, criticizing and sanctioning behavior. Um, I, I don't think uh, there's any any um, ambiguity that it's a time of some uncertainty there. So I, I guess I'm not sure I subscribe to the idea that there's unaware uh, investors. At the same time, I don't think that uh, either China or the United States can look at separating out our economies in a way that will make investment in either direction kind of binary on or off. So I, I think there's, there's uh, you know, it's a volatile time, both in terms of the health and broad macro conditions, and it's a volatile time in terms of US-China relations, which is why I go back to my core principle that it's incumbent on the leaders of both countries, and I think the leaders kind of expressed this uh, as we saw them meet just a couple of weeks ago, uh, to try and get discussions in a place where it's clearer um, what uh, can be expected on each side. Uh, that doesn't mean you stop criticizing things that you find objectionable. The question is how and to what effect. Yeah, the future's inextricably linked. I think that's the message and the diplomacy has to continue in whatever form. Um, so great to have you on. I've got 20 more questions for you, so please come back soon and we'll, we'll talk more about inflation and um, build back better as well. Um, but I'll save them for next time. Jack Liu, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary under President Obama. So I look forward to talking to you. And thank you again for handling your own our tech issues on your side and um, doing so with aplomb. <laughs> we'll see you soon. The market opens next. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running as we begin a brand new trading week here on Wall Street. And as expected, we've got a higher open across the board with tech trying to claw back some of last week's 2.6% loss. That said, volatility sure to remain high as we await more data on the Omicron variant and the future direction of Federal Reserve support. The S&P 500 rising or falling more than 1% in four of the past five trading sessions. That tells you something about the level of uncertainty. And the VIX volatility index, the fear gauge as we call it, hit levels not seen since last winter too. In the meantime, shares of Lucid Motors, a big loser in early trade, the electric car maker receiving a subpoena from the regulator, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission. U.S. officials want more information about the special purpose acquisition deal that took Lucid public earlier this year. Now, several sources are telling CNN the Biden administration plans a diplomatic boycott on the Beijing Winter Olympics to protest China's human rights abuses. 
The dispute surrounding tennis star Pong Shui has focused attention on the issue once again. She temporarily disappeared from public view a month ago after accusing a former party official of sexual assault. The International Olympic Committee has been criticised for saying Pong is safe and well after two video calls in which it was unclear if the star was speaking freely. Joining us now is Tang Biao. He's Chinese lawyer and civil rights activist. He was detained for criticizing China in the lead up to the 2008 Olympics and now lives in exile in New Jersey. He's also the Hauser human rights scholar at Hunter College in New York and the Posen visiting professor at the University of Chicago. So fantastic to have you with us. Um, let's talk first about a potential diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics, if indeed it is announced by the U.S. administration. How will this be felt in China? How important is this? Yeah, so we have been campaigning uh, um, the boycott of Beijing Winter Olympics for years, uh, and we negotiated with the uh, International Olympic Committee, and we um, pressed them to pay more attention to the human rights violations in Xinjiang, the Uyghur genocide, and Hong Kong and Tibet and China. And also uh, uh, in 2008, the um, Beijing Summer Olympics uh, didn't improve China's rule of law and human rights and has, has become uh, an excuse for Chinese government to violate human rights and surprise freedom. So it's really important for not only the uh, human rights community, but also for all the world uh, to uh, raise the awareness of uh, human rights violations in uh, China. And the world should prioritize uh, moral principle and uh, freedom over money and benefit. Does China feel the pressure do the Chinese leadership feel the pressure? Because we were discussing on the show that the Internet is cleaned of any of this information. The Chinese people don't see the reports that the international community and the news media do when this kind of thing happens. The discussion of, of Peng Shui is not seen in, in China. So does it really make a difference to the Chinese administration? And if so, what difference does it make, Tong? Yes, uh, Beijing did face the pressure, did feel the pressure from uh, all over the world, from human rights organizations and uh, uh, Western government. Uh, and uh, so recently, uh, Peng Shui issue uh, became a trouble for Beijing. And, uh, and uh, the authorities uh, faked uh, email uh, in the beginning. And then uh, that IOC, uh, um, President uh, talked with Peng Shui via um, like, uh, um, video, and then um, it didn't silence the uh, international attention. So, uh, and uh, uh, like the United States, uh, UK, Lithuania, and, and uh, uh, maybe more uh, countries uh, have uh, decided or are discussing a potential uh, boycott, a diplomatic boycott, and, and we are campaigning for a complete boycott. So the pressure is there, and uh, and Beijing, you know, uh, Beijing doesn't care about uh, sports. What they care is it's, um, uh, it's a political mo monopoly. So the number one priority for Beijing is to maintain its uh, one-party rule. And, mm. and if there is a real boycott 
of Beijing Winter Olympics, that that's a big uh, threat to uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and they don't want to see this happen. Would it be better if the athletes didn't go too? Would that message be far more powerful? Yeah, we um, we always um, said that the uh, the athletes. We don't want to harm the athletes. We 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 don't uh, hate Olymp- uh, Olympics or or sport. Uh, but here, what's happening is uh, in in China the human rights violations and in Xinjiang the genocide. And we hope to postpone the uh, Olympics or to uh, relocate the uh, Winter Olympics. And um, uh, if the athletes decide to go to Beijing, and we hope they can send a message to the outside world, uh, and uh, they can talk about uh, human rights or Peng Shui or the, the genocide, and, uh, and uh, they, can, they can do their, their protest. Or even after they uh, they uh, finish their uh, their game and then they uh, say something on social media that's uh, that's um, uh, welcome. So um, and and I know uh, American champion uh, always said uh, uh, already said um, uh, she doesn't want to be uh, put in that dilemma to balance uh, morality and uh, mm. and her career. Tang, I was going to ask you that. I mean, we've seen NBA players here in the United States making statements with things like trainers or, or sneakers with Free China um, written on them, for example. Are international sports stars safe making those kind of statements while in China? And tied to that, do you think Peng Shui is safe today? Of course, uh, Peng Shui is not safe. Uh, what we know, uh, uh, where those videos, uh, uh, she's still alive uh, and she's still in China, but uh, she is definitely not safe, not well, and she's totally controlled uh, by the Chinese authorities. And no, nobody knows where uh, she is being detained. And so uh, the... Uh, athletes, if they go to China, and uh, I think uh, uh, nobody can guarantee their safety, especially, uh, you know, last uh, last year and this year's uh, Meng Wanzhou case and two uh, Canadian Michaels uh, were detained arbitrarily and they were used by Beijing as hostages. So mm-hmm. it's uh, possible that uh, the, the, the athletes um, are not uh, safe if they protect, uh, protest uh, against uh, Beijing, or if they say something uh, critical of uh, uh, the, the Chinese government, but uh, but it's still uh, the right thing to do uh, to uh, make a tiny protest. You know, if they say something on Twitter or Facebook when they are in Beijing, or if they uh, if they say they they don't want to uh, attend the opening ceremony, or if they say something on uh, Peng Shui, Hong Kong, or Xinjiang, I think that would be okay. Not so dangerous. And this, there's something uh, worthy of uh, trying. Tong, we, uh, we know, you know personally what the cost is. And uh, we thank you for your bravery. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Tong Biao, Housing Human Rights Scholar at Hunter College in New York and the Posen Visiting Professor at the University of Chicago. So thank you for joining us today. More on First Move to Come. Stay with us.
Breaking news, Myanmar's deposed leader Aung San Suu Kyi has had her four-year prison sentence dramatically reduced after a pardon by the chief of the military-appointed government. Ivan Watson joins us now. Ivan, what more do we know? Well, first of all, there was the sentencing of the two individuals that were the head of the government in Myanmar up until the military coup of February 1st of this year, which... uh, overthrew an elected government and placed these two individuals uh, in detention uh, and into a secret trial that resulted today in the de facto leader of the government, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, this iconic uh, opposition leader uh, in Myanmar, being initially sentenced to four years of prison on two counts of uh, incitement and essentially breaking COVID-19 protocols. Uh, And the deposed president, uh, her ally, who was also sentenced to four years under the two charges, we've just learned from state-run television that the uh, general who declared himself uh, leader of the country after the military coup has knocked two years off of both of those sentences But in the case of Aung San Suu Kyi, she still faces 10 criminal charges, including uh, the allegation that she illegally imported and used walkie-talkies, if you can believe it, but much more serious charges as well. Uh, The sentencing today has been uh, denounced by the UK's foreign secretary, by human rights groups, uh, by Amnesty International. Take a listen. This is also an example of the harshness and um, the viciousness of the military once it wants to impose itself on the people of Myanmar. Now, the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commissioner uh, is on record calling this a sham trial held in secretive proceedings uh, and also trying to draw attention to more than 10,000 opponents of the military regime who've been detained, she says, since February 1st, as well as a number of deaths in custody, more than 100, she says, likely due to torture and ill treatment uh, beyond uh, the fact that you have former elected leaders who are undergoing detention and, and this secret trial, secretive trial, uh, you also have the country as a whole deteriorating further into economic malaise and, and arguably civil war. Uh, the World Bank projecting that Myanmar, uh, its economy is contracting by 18%. And take a look at this very disturbing video from Sunday from Yangon, the largest city, the commercial capital, where you had peaceful protesters in the street that were rammed by a military truck. Uh, Security forces then reportedly opened fire on the demonstrators. This has been condemned by the U.S. Embassy in Yangon. Uh, It has been condemned as well by other organizations and a sign of how tenuous the situation really is in Myanmar today. Back to you. Ivan, thank you so much for that. Great to have you with us. Ivan Watson there. Now, the pandemic accelerated the development and use of digital financial services, a boon for the underbanked around the world. For evidence of that, get my teeth in, look to the Philippines. First unicorn, a fintech provider called Mint. One might say they're minted. Backed by China's Ant Group, it's the parent company of micropayment service Gcash with 48 million registered users. It's also behind Fuse, which offers micro-business loans. Mint's recent funding round has valued it at $2 billion, turning it into a double unicorn. And Martha Sazon is the president 
president and CEO, and she joins us now from Manila. Martha, fantastic to have you on the show. Uh, 70%, I believe, of the Philippines are either unbanked or underbanked, and yet you've managed to get 70%, I believe, of the adult population with a GCash account. That's pretty astonishing in my mind. Uh, good evening, Julia. Yes, and that's true. Um, currently, we have 51 million registered users in GCash, which, are, which represents 70% of the adult population right now. And how many people are actively using it as opposed to being registered? So you have 51 million registered. How many are actually active? And what does having a GCash account actually mean and allow people to do? Okay, so well, what what I can say is that we have around uh, 15 million daily active transactions, and uh, picking at around 23 million daily active um, logins. Uh, the GCash app is actually a super app that turns your mobile device into a virtual wallet plus more. Um, beyond digitalizing payments and transfers, uh, we also offer financial services. Uh, like savings, investment, loans, and insurance, and digital lifestyles, lifestyle services, um, such as food delivery, shopping, and even gaming, all without the need for documents. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question, because with all of these kind of digital products, knowing your customer is crucial, knowing their credit history. And in a country where very few people have that, how do you manage to allow people to access these facilities like G-Loans, for example, which is a part of the business and not end up losing money? Well, actually, you know, um, it's really quite a challenge here in the Philippines, especially Mm. that we don't have a national ID right now, but we have um, technology that allows us to uh, do EKYC or know your customer um, by the use of ID, a simple ID or uh, and a selfie. Um, and after that, um, we, we get to analyze the transactions that allows people to earn their G-score or their credit score so that um, uh, people can uh, get access to to lending through their G-score if their G-score really pass uh, the threshold. Um, and this is very empowering because a lot of um, the base of the pyramid or the unbanked actually cannot have access to lending only because they don't have documents. But by the power of the transactions that they make um, in our platform, we're able to uh, score their credit and uh, lend them uh, the proper products. And talk to me about the financials, too, because I've seen you quoted as saying, look, you're proof that it's possible to be profitable and to grow in this space. And we've seen some recent IPOs um, from India, Grab, actually the most recent, which also is a, a super app of sorts, and they've really struggled. So how are you managing to make this profitable at the same time? Um, Yes, so uh, we recently um, registered uh, positive income, um, and for the past four months, we've had that. Although... um, That's not really our focus moving forward because the focus really is to grow um, the use cases even more and to tap uh, more markets. But the way we've done it is through scale um, coupled with uh, proper cost management as well. And what about growth plans, Martha, beyond the Philippines? Well, the growth plans really um, is to... um, increase our penetration to the base of the pyramid, which is largely the unbanked population. Um, And this is increasing the penetration within the Philippine regions. Um, Also tapping the new segments like um, the youth uh, to to start them early in terms of financial management and financial education. And also the OFWs or the overseas 
Filipino uh, workers um, that are uh, situated in different countries around the world. So to help them reconnect back to the Philippines. Also in terms of business, um, our, our plan is to uh, double down on lending. Um, which is really what's needed by most of the base of the pyramid, and as well as investment in platforms um, that allows us to increase our participation and expand our participation in the invest tech uh, space, uh, whether that's crypto, local trading, or global trading. Martha, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And um, I think the key there is in your answer about not going beyond Philippines, but to make the product perfect and get access to as many people as possible in the Philippines before you uh, expand elsewhere. And there's a, perhaps a secret to uh, the strategy in that, quite frankly. Um, thank you for talking to us. Come back and talk to us soon, because one of the other things I love about what you're doing is G-Forest, which allows people to collect points and then buy trees, which the sustainability push of your company is brilliant too. Um, Martha, great to have you on the show. Thank you. The president and CEO of Mint there. Come back soon, please. More on First Move after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and a gut punch for Better.com employees before the Christmas holidays. The CEO of the mortgage company told everyone on a staff Zoom call that they were being laid off. There were some 900 people on the call, about 9% of the entire workforce. Christine Romans joins us to discuss. Christine, and I watched this video and it's worse than anything yeah. I ever saw on The Office. This guy yeah. is hideous, quite frankly. Yeah. And it was terse and emotionless, three minutes, all these folks on this Zoom webinar uh, dialing in to hear their boss and suddenly he tells them this. If you're on this call, you are part of an unlucky group that is being laid off. Your employment here is terminated effective immediately. His name is Vishal Garg, and he is the CEO of this Better.com. Uh, you know, we talked to the CFO of the company and tried to get an explanation for this very terse emotionalist firing. And he said, look, it's gut-wrenching to have to lay people off during the, uh, the holidays. But he said they have to have a fortress balance sheet and a streamlined and focused workforce for the radically evolving homeownership market. Translation, they're getting ready to go public, right? They're getting ready to go public. They had a 750 $50 million cash infusion last week, and now they're, you know, divesting of, of just about a tenth of their staff. So the tone of this, you know, the CEO, he said, I had to do this once before, and I almost cried. I hope I'm stronger this time. And you could hear in some of these, if you go on YouTube, you could hear all some from the, from the employer's view, some of them who were taping this, gasping because they were so shocked about just sort of how to callous it was. Um, Forbes uncovered an email he had sent in the past sort of giving you an idea of what kind of management style he has. He sent this email to staff, according to Forbes, uh, previously. You are too damn slow. You are a bunch of dumb dolphins. So stop it, stop it, stop it right now. You are embarrassing me. So if you're looking for sort of like, you know, um, Workforce Management 101, uh, this is yeah. getting a lot of attention this morning because this is not really how uh, CEOs tend to behave. Yeah, I think he embarrassed himself more than anyone ever could uh, embarrass him. I mean, he's lucky boycott better.com isn't uh, trending on social media. Christine Romans, thank you for that. Nice I'm still sorry you. for those people. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.